Give me open your Bibles to Genesis 19. We're going to be telling the rest of Lot's story today uh, because it is an unfinished story where we uh, left off. Um, I just want to uh, uh, comment, and uh, that very first song we, we sang, it is 20 years old, and, uh, and uh, we used to sing it a lot in the church we were in back then. And uh, so when I heard we were singing it, I wanted to warn the choir that I could get my praise on with that song. Not sure, but uh, yeah, I used to have about a 36 vertical jump with that one, uh, Pastor Stephen, but uh, I'm older now. So anyway, I can't get quite as high. But uh, no, I, I love that song because the word in that song, it was in, it, we read Psalm 136 before, that word is a, one of the most difficult words in Hebrew to translate to where we can understand it in English. Because... It, Everlasting love, uh, King James says that mercy everlasting or everlasting mercy. It is, it is the, well, the, the thing that God gives us, his, his, his comfort, his care, his love. It is all-encompassing. It's forever, and we can't get a handle on it. It's so amazing, and it's spelled C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed or chesed is how, how it would be pronounced, uh, probably. Uh, we're not sure how all Hebrew words were pronounced, but that's probably it. And so I, I really appreciate us uh, having that. And just in case you're our guest, I want to clear up something uh, Pastor Stephen was mentioning about the car wash. Uh, we don't charge people for, uh, we don't charge the world to do the Lord's stuff. Um, you know, if God wants us to do something, we expect God's people to do it. So our car wash yesterday was free to anybody that came up to get it. The church members paid for it, okay? And uh, so if you didn't get your car washed, but you want to support the kids, you can give it through that car wash. You can still uh, give it anytime you want to help the kids on their mission trips. But they, they got to work a little bit, earn a little bit. Uh, they had Bibles to give out. They, they did uh, gospel work while they were washing cars. They got mine washed. I didn't care if they just spit on it, but they did a good job uh, washing it uh, uh, because I just wanted to give them some money. But, uh, hey, get a car wash, get a car wash, right? So uh, we did that. It was a lot of fun yesterday. So, and I wasn't here the whole time, but part I was here, it was great. Uh, be opening your Bibles to Genesis 19. We come to a delicate place here in the Scripture, in Lot's unfinished story. If I just stopped last week, it should raise some questions. Well, what happened to Lot after this? I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Abraham comes out and he watches it burn, and, and that's kind of the end of the story. What happened after that? Well, what happened after that? Again, it's, it's a little bit sensitive, a little bit delicate. Uh, we're going to read it. It's in the Bible. <coughs> and uh, I was asked by people close to me, are you going to skip this one? Because the delicate part is really delicate. It, it's, it's grotesque, in fact. It, it's... it's uh, uh, evil. We'll, we'll try to put all of it in context as we go, but what, what I found there is, as I looked at it and studied it, because I don't want to skip anything, it's in God's Word, He gave it to us for a reason, and I believe I discovered part of the reason why God gave it to us. I would never assume to know all the things, uh, why God does all things, and all the things, reasons why He would do them, but I think I found something that I think will be helpful to you as well, that I want you to see, and this is what I want you to take home with you. God is always doing something unexpected. A verse you're very familiar with goes like this, that he is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Every word of that, that verse needs to be stopped and thought about. God is able. God is able. There's nothing he's not able to do. You know, sometimes somebody asks, are you going to do that? Well, if I'm able. Well, God never has to say, if I'm able, he is able. I like to put it this way. God is always more. 
He's more than enough. He's more than present. As far as you can go, he's more. And that's what he's saying in this verse. God is able to do exceeding abundantly. Exceeding means more than. Abundantly means plenty enough. All right? If you've got it abundantly, it means you've got enough and extra. And then God still puts a modifier on that and says exceeding abundantly. Like it is ridiculous how much he can do. But then the last part of it is what gets me beyond all I can ask or think. I can't ask God for so much he can't do it. And I can't even imagine the limit of what, there is no limit of what God can do. I mean, just the universe is miraculous enough. He can do exceeding abundantly beyond all that. And anything I could ask or possibly imagine. So in other words, the Christian lives in a wonderful place because our Father can do exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. We have no need uh, to ever fear. We have no need to ever worry. Uh, we can trust Him for all things. Well, even when things look bad, and here things look bad, and what happens here is awful. It is, it, it's terrible. But God's going to do something. I'm going to save that for the very end and, and give you kind of the rest of the story. So would you bow with me in prayer before we read, this text, uh, read the text and get started? Would you bow in prayer with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, it is just our, our modern ideas that cause us to even pause here. Uh, Lord, we understand that... Um, your word doesn't care about what we think. It just tells us what is and what is true and what is needed and what is necessary and what we need to know. And so, Lord, we need to know this part as well. We need to see your hand in all things. Lord, even in the evil of man, the sin of man, Lord, you are in work, at work. And so, Lord, we thank you that we serve a God who not only knows all things that were and all things that are and all things that will be, but you know all the, all the possibilities of all the things that are and were and will be. And you are the God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we bow before you because your knowledge, your ability is limitless. There is no limit on what you can do, what you do know, what you uh, can see into the future, and what you know is going to happen because you've planned it out and it's going to happen according to your will. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for that, that we can rest in you, we can trust in you that uh, you are guiding our lives. And so, as Proverbs teaches us, we acknowledge you in all our ways, and you direct our paths. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come to this time, and, and let, me, let me just read through this, uh, and, uh, and, and then I'll comment on it. It begins in verse 30, and it's, it's Genesis 19. After this passage, Lot is only referred to in reference to something else, like his descendants or his wife. Or things like that. But he's called a righteous man in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he just drops out of the scene. But the result of this story, we see some results in the Old Testament we want to see today. It says, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. We'll lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Notice that sentence. It's going to be repeated. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let's make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him 
that we may preserve offspring from our father. So, that, so they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab. He is the father of all the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, for he is the father of the Ammonites until this day. Wow, what a passage. What, what, it's just strange. Why would this happen? Well, God's doing something unexpected. I want you to notice in the very first verse we read, verse 30, that Lot goes up, out of Zoar, or, or goes up out of Zoar and lives in the hills with his two daughters, for he's afraid to live in Zoar, and he lives in a cave with his two daughters. Uh, that's very interesting uh, if you remember what we talked about last week. Now, you might not have been here last week. When the angels went to Sodom to rescue Lot, here's what they told him Get out, get out now. God's going to destroy his place. Go to the hills, move up into the hills, because God's going to blow this place apart. Well, Lot hesitates. Lot drags his feet. Lot holds back. The angels have to grab him by the hand and pull him out of the city. Pull him and his wife and his two daughters, because that's the only ones that would, were, were at all willing to go. Uh, and even Lot's wife stops, turns around, and longs to go back to Sodom and turns into a pillar of salt. And so they drag him out. And on the way, they get him out of Sodom, and the angels say, get up into the hills, and he whines about it and says, oh, can I just go over here to this little town called Zoar? It's not that big, you know, it's not a big deal, please. And so the angels grant that, and that's where he moves into. Now he's left it and gone where he was supposed to go to start with. I don't think God put that in there for no reason. He finally figures out God knew what he's talking about. And that's a good place to start, not a place to fall into later. That's where he, what he should have done at the very, very beginning, all right? He should have got up into the hills, and Zoar wouldn't exist if he didn't. As far as I know, God never came in and destroyed Zoar. I know he didn't do it the way Sodom, it happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. But I, I, I want you to notice something else. It says he was afraid to live there. That is the only motivation the Bible gives us of why he went up. But we don't know what's behind that motivation, what motivated him to be afraid. I mean, you can be afraid of nothing, like the dark. There's nothing in the dark but in there in the light. Just because it's dark, you're only afraid because you can't see it, right? It's like swimming in murky water that is salty. You can't see that shark before he gets you. <laughs> but you're playing in his living room, so just saying. I grew up on the coast, so I know about that. All right, so... So you're, you have this tension, this fear, because you don't know what's going to happen. So I don't know what motivated that fear, but I got an idea. Number one, Lot finally wakes up to, wow, God wasn't kidding. I mean, if God came and told you, I'm going to destroy Stanton, you'd go, oh, okay. What does that mean? You know, like, army's going to roll in, kill a bunch of people, take us all captive. You know, they're going to blow a couple things up. What's going to happen? But when Lot looks out and sees nothing but black spot left where there were four cities you go wasn't this place supposed to be like that maybe it's got a delayed fuse on it let me get out before god changes his mind and comes and kills this one too i mean just the the magnitude of what happened to sodom gomorrah and the, and the two other cities that were caught up zoar was supposed to be in that as well i just i personally think he went yeah, I made a mistake. Let's get on out of here, too. Or the people there, the other, 
alternative, I would think, and it doesn't matter. I don't know why I'm giving you all these alternatives. But the other thing would be, all these people here were just like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, and they know I'm the guy that got out, and so they're going to blame me for what happened there. Let me get out. And they started to get, maybe they were given a lot of hard time. Oh, if it hadn't been for you, that wouldn't have happened. So you know how people think. They always are looking for somebody else to blame. Sinners always do, right? We never take responsibility. And a lot of Christians don't either. We always take, don't take, want to take responsibility for our, for our own mistakes. Now, let me just tell you, the best place you can get in life is to own up to what you did wrong, repent, fix it, and do better. Right? Okay. Well, so that's where Lot goes. He doesn't stay in Zoar. After Sodom, he goes on up into the mountains. Well, and, and what happened to his descendants? Well, I, I, I want to explain something here. In, in their day, in their culture, you don't have a descendant if it's from a daughter. It's got to be from a son. Lot has no sons. He's got two daughters. He now has no wife. And we read in the story, the daughters go, hey, dad doesn't have any descendants. We got to get some for him. Because we're not going to have any men want to marry us. We're Lot's kids. You know, I don't know why she thought that was a big deal. But he doesn't have any descendants. He doesn't have anybody to carry on the, his family, his, his family name, his family tradition. And you know, in that day, a son is, in their thinking, more important and, and more whatever than, than a daughter. Of course, that's wrong, but that's just how they thought. You've got to understand that. So, that we find this trouble, and then I've read what happened. You're grown-ups. You, you get it what went on. But I want to I move on to the sin that led to the sin. We now know where Lot is, but, but what was his sin that led to this? Well, I go way back. If you were here earlier, some other sermons. If not, you can look them up on, on our website, or we have a little phone app. Uh, you can look it up on the phone. Uh, you can look at the past sermons. But I think Lot's problem started when Abraham said, pick a place. Way back there, listen... A lot of, let me just stop myself for a second. A lot of times when people find themselves in deep, deep trouble, they think what they're seeing in front of them is the trouble. No, what they're seeing in front of them, it's like a tree. What you're seeing are the leaves on the end of the little stems off the branches that lead to the trunk that go down to the roots, and the problem started in the root. I hope you followed that in your mind. The trembling of a leaf alcoholism ain't your problem and you treat the alcoholism you still got trouble you still got a problem because that's not the problem the problem is something way down in the roots you gotta go back to well in the when lot offered when abraham offered to lot to pick a place we see what's in his heart if you remember that story back then they both abraham lot is his nephew they're together they get they're getting so rich together they got so much stuff that their herdsmen are fighting over grassland, grazeland. And Abraham says, man, we don't need to get into these fights. Our herdsmen are fighting each other. I don't want to fight with you. I know you don't want to fight with me. Pick a spot, and I'll take what's left. That's how we kind of generally say it. And so Lot looks out, and he looks one way, and it's eh. But he looks toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and he looks at that place, and it is lush and green, and he says, I'll take that. Number one, all that glitters is not gold. Let me just say, if you're having a hard time in life, that might be the gold in your life. 
If you're having an easy time, that might be a tragedy in your life. It was certainly a tragedy in Lot's life. So we see that at least I can say he's a little bit selfish. If your uncle gives you the option, I don't know, it might just be my southern culture. But when somebody says, we got this and we got this, which one do you want? You always take the, what looks like the lesser. Well, just give me the small piece. Oh, just, no, that's fine. I don't need more than that. I mean, that's just what I was taught how to be. I don't know. Maybe you come from a place and go, oh, I can have either one. I'll take the good one, you know. Like at Christmas, you know, when you're a kid, you always want to open the biggest package first, right? That's obviously the best thing because it's the biggest. And we think that way, and we almost never grow out of that. And Lot's thinking that way, and he takes the best. And here, Abraham, you go. hope you can make it in that kind of okay land. I'm going to go down here where it's good. Secondly, we see Lot, when, when the angels get to Sodom, he's sitting in the gate. That was just last week. He, he's made himself a ruler of that city. He's wanting to get in with the elders. That's where they sat. That's where they, it's, it's sort of like the city council kind of idea. That's where they are. The decisions are being made. Now, and, and all it says is Lot sitting in the gate. So there's several possibilities there too. He could have just been there because he, he's trying to smuse those guys and get in with them. Or they may have let him in. He may have, they said, hey, yeah, you can join us and you can help make decisions. I don't know, but when Lot will not give them what they want in, in the earlier part of this chapter, they turn against him and say, oh, you came in here as a stranger and you think you're a ruler. Now, they're either making fun of him or he had made himself a ruler. But either way, he wants to be the important guy. He wants to be in charge. He wants to be the big guy. And you know people like that as well. And if you're one of them, then take this personally. Where you've always got to be at the head of the line. You always got to be the one seen. You always got to be the most important person there. And the Bible tells us to always esteem others better than yourself. And that's the biblical idea of it. To look at everybody else as more important than you are. And Lot didn't have that going on in his life. Abraham had been content to take the lesser and bless his nephew. Abraham's not trying to make himself a big shot. He just became a big shot because of how he lived his life. But Lot is always scratching and fighting for that. It reminds me the passage in James that says, why is there conflict and war among you? It's because you're trying to get all this, the best. And so you are at war with other people to get that. And then it says, and you don't have it because you don't ask for it. But even if you ask for it, you asked it to consume it on yourself. You asked it for selfish reasons. The only, thing, the only reason God gives us good things in our life is to glorify Him, to honor Him, to spend it on, on what His will is. And I think Lot's original sin was to be prideful and to, be, to, to, to want to be the big shot. Well, by this time, there, there's no big shot in this. In fact, it's very embarrassing. It's very humiliating. It's very, everybody's going to go, ooh. When they see you. Now, I wanted to point out that it, that it said it twice, and Lot didn't know when they came in or went out. In this case, maybe the root of this particular sin was he shouldn't have been drinking so much. Why would, you know, daughter, why are you giving me even more wine? You know, I had enough for supper. I don't need to get drunk. But maybe he was just so depressed and discouraged, and he was willing to go for it. I don't know but not knowing their actions. And I think the Bible does that because in the New Testament, the Bible says that righteous man, Lot. I'm going, wait, whoa, tip it back up. <laughs> I just got finished telling you what all's wrong with Lot, and God says he's a righteous man. Why? 
again, I, I, I can't say with 100% confidence, but, but I do know this. God doesn't look at things the way we look at it. And in all of this, no matter how bad he's acting, it seems like he still holds on to God. I mean, he didn't participate in the sins of Sodom, but they did affect his family, right? These daughters, we're looking at this, they are affected by the culture in which they grew up, which is a cautionary tale to you and your kids. Look at the culture in which they're growing up. And you might ought to do something. You've got to help them. You've got to prepare your kids to handle that culture. And by the way, you don't do that by living in a cave because just living in a hole doesn't make you holier. All right? You have to prepare them appropriately at their age and understanding to handle the pressures of this world. You cannot isolate them and expect them to do it. Uh, but that's a whole other sermon. So Lot is now reaping the consequences of living a more selfish lifestyle. And the daughters, isn't that what they're thinking? We can't trust God to take care of our dad and he needs descendants and the only solution we can see is the one that's right in front of our face and we're going to do that instead of i don't know what god would have done with lot if they'd have said well we're going to trust god god's going to take care of dad instead they try to take matters into their own hands but their acts are not heroic they're decadent they're they're awful i would point out there's no given law by this time as far as to the hebrew people uh, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law is found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy has not yet been given. And in there, it's expressly forbidden. The things that uh, people argue for today, all sexual perversion and difference, other than one man and one woman in a committed marriage for one lifetime, is a perversion against God's original intent and order. All right? Doesn't matter who, what, when, where, how. It's always a breaking of God's intentional order. It's, as I said last week that somebody else told me, well, a professor uh, said in a, in a school down in Charleston, that the rest of the Bible is a commentary on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because there God sets the order. That's what we're to do. And man has rebelled against God's order. And so all the things you hear today about gender identity and LGBTQ plus stuff is just, a rebellion against God. That's it. Now, before you get all high and mighty, you got some rebellion against God in your own life. Might not be that particular sin, but we all have them. We all got sins. And the Bible says those who do these things and things like these, and it's got a big old long list in Galatians 5, you ought to read it, shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you got to repent of yours too, turn to Christ, because only he can save you. So they exploit their father, and they both have children. And so that brings us to the last couple of verses, and this is where it really starts getting interesting. You thought all that could be interesting. No, 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 no. That's just the setup for what God is up to. Look what it, look what it says. So, verse 37, The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. Moab means out of the father. Mo, Moses, out of the water. Moab, Ab is the Hebrew word for father, out of father. Ben is also a Hebrew word meaning a son. Benjamin is son of my right arm or son of my strength because they considered the right arm strong and the left weak. And so Benjamin or Benjamin is the son of my right arm. Ben-Ami, son out of the father. 
Okay? So both of them are referencing that from their father they got children. Now Moab and, and the Ammonites is what the, uh, uh, it says in verse 38. Uh, the younger also bore a son, named him Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites to this day. So we have Moabites and Ammonites. They both became a populous people. Now, I need to show you where they live because they're going to come back into history. And that is, pretend like, my, I don't know how many, how many of y'all ever seen a Bible map of the Middle East, like in the back of your Bible? Okay, man, the rest of y'all have missed it. Wow. I hope you've seen it. You just didn't feel like raising your hand. So you got the Sea of Galilee up here, and then you got the Jordan River, and then you got the Dead Sea. And everybody who goes to Israel wants to go to the Dead Sea because it's so full of minerals and salt. No organism can live in there, and you float, like, way high in the water because it's so thick. Well, the Red Sea is kind of like a, a, sort of the shape of my hand. Then there's this little part, and then there's another little pool down here, if you look at it. That little pool is where we believe Sodom and Gomorrah were. Okay? Blew a hole in there, and then a little thing, and then filled up with water. That's what we think. All right? Could be wrong, but that's pretty much it. And so I'm going to do it for you. Moab settled right here. The Ammonites are right here. They're just right beside the Dead Sea. And think about it. If this is where it all blew up, and they went over here to the hill country, and then they have children, they just kind of come back toward the Dead Sea, and that's where they settled. And now you've got the Moabites and the Ammonites. Well, when did they come back into history? Well, Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. He has 12 sons who go into Egypt, spend 300 years in slavery. So about four to 500 years later, the Jewish people are slaves in Egypt, and God does the whole Exodus thing, gets them out, and he's taking them back to the Promised Land on the other side of that Jordan River over here where the Mediterranean Sea is in that little crescent where he's going to take them. So they're coming out of Egypt. They get up. They're coming up beside on the other side of the Jordan River from all that, and they are going to bump into the Ammonites and Moabites. Now, I hope you kept up. Abraham's nephew has two kids that become Moabites and Ammonites. They're cousins. They're distant cousins to the Jewish people. All right, you following that? See, I'm from the south where you got, I got a second cousin twice removed. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Only your mom and dad can keep the scorecard about all that, right? So this is where we are, and sometimes we, you know, the Bible says it, and you've got to kind of pull it together and kind of look at it. So here comes Moses and the children of Israel, and they get up to Moab and the Ammonites, Moabites, and they say, hey, we want to buy food from you, we want to buy water from you, we want to pay you to let our sheep graze there, and we just want to walk through. That's all we're going to do. We're not going to hurt you. We're not going to take anything away that we don't pay for can we come through? And they went, no, you can't. Well, I thought we were distant cousins, man. Come on. Cousin came to town, you know, help a brother. We need to get through there. No. But here's what's interesting. In Deuteronomy 2, God tells Israel, you do not hurt them. Don't, they're, your, they're your relatives. Don't, don't destroy them. They could have just wiped them out. And God specifically tells Israel not to do it. That may become important a little bit later on as well. There's another famous story involving the Moabites and Ammonites. And that's when, same time period, Moses is going around them. And they said, let's get them cursed. 
So they hired a prophet named Balaam who rode a donkey there and he said, I'll only say what God tells me to say. They said, oh, good enough. Here's some money. Come curse them. And he never does. In fact, he curses Moab and the Moabites and the Ammonites. But you remember the story that donkey had more sense than the prophet? You all remember that? Saw the angel? Often true in the Bible, donkeys have more sense than people riding them. So that's all true. You say, okay, great, what's your point? Well, we got to go a little further down the line. In fact, let me, let me turn there and let me read you something. There's this woman in Israel, and the Bible says, And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So they, they go to Moab with their two boys. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. And Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she's left with her two sons. And these two took Moabite, Moabite wives, so they married Moabites these people that wouldn't help Israel and started in a very embarrassing way. The name one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Then Malon and Chilion died. So the women were left without her two sons and her husband. So she says, I'm going to go back home. And she set out from the place. And verse 8 of chapter 1, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me and the Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband and she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept and they said to her no we will return with you to your people but Naomi said this, this is how we know they were southerners because you know the first time people offer you go, oh no 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 I couldn't and then they go no seriously and you go really okay All right so Naomi said they said no we couldn't do that and then she says no you go back turn back my daughters why will you go with me have I yet sons in my womb? They may become your husbands. Turn back, my daughters. Go, to, go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I had a husband this night, uh, this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you refrain from marriage? No. Leave. It is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake. The hand of the Lord has been against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and went home. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return with your sister-in-law. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Well, most of you know the rest of the story, but there in Israel, she meets a guy named Boaz, and they get married. Boaz also comes from an interesting history. His ancestor back to the tribes of Israel was Judah. Judah had a son who married a woman, and then the son died, and the woman's name was Tamar. And she comes to Judah and says, you got to help me out here. 
you got to give me somebody else to marry. You, you're responsible for me now. And he says, well, I got this younger son. Let, let him grow up a little bit, and he'll be old enough. He can marry you, and he'll take care of you. She says, all right, fine. But when he grew up, Judah didn't do that. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She dresses up, and she goes, pretends to be a woman for sale. And Judah's walking by, and he sees her, and she's disguised, and he buys her services. And he gives her some stuff to pay her because he didn't have cash. And she said, he said, just hold on that, and I'll send money, and you give me my stuff back. She said, fine. Then she disappears. When he sent the money back, they came back because they couldn't find her. So he says, all right. Well, then a little bit later, his daughter-in-law, who doesn't have a husband, is going to have a baby. And he says, well, how'd that happen? You, you're, you, we're going to have to stone you. And she says, really? Well, here's the stuff that I was paid for to be in this state, and it was his stuff. So they had a little boy named Perez. Listen to the end of Ruth. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David, the king of Israel. What awful beginnings for these two people, Ruth and Boaz. And they become the great-grandparents of the greatest king of Israel, who is in the line of David, the line of Judah is born, Jesus' relatives. And I didn't even mention Rahab the harlot's in there too. Guess what, y'all? No matter how bad it gets, God can do something with it. And I want to point something else out. We'll just stick with Ruth as one of them. Very shaky beginning, and, and believe me, the people around them did not think this was a cool thing that happened with Lot and his daughters. And so these people are always looked down upon by the Jewish people. That's probably why they said, no, we're not going to let you through. Y'all threw us out way back. Ruth is not bound by her heritage to follow suit. She could break the chain of what I would call familial sin in her life. What I mean by that is, I don't believe the sins of the father are passed down, but I do believe that there is a tendency to a certain type of sin in all of our lives, and they're different in each life, that may or may not have been inherited. In other words, the way my... Family used to sin might be a temptation in my life to sin more so than another temptation. Maybe not. That's not 100%. Again, it's, it's just an idea I have. But, but I will tell you how it worked out in my life, and then I, I want to really apply that in your life. And it was this. Uh, I, I joke about being Scott-Irish, and it's not a joke. I mean, that's my ancestors were Scott-Irish. And, uh, and so that's where I came from. And... And, and you may not know, like, Halloween is associated, it, it, it was the Irish that started that, okay? And, and there's, there's a cult in, in, in the family heritage. There's false gods there, and, and there's this occultic thing. They're seeing the future in the Scottish world. Uh, it's called the second sight, and, and certain people supposedly have that ability to see into the future and all of these things. When I was 14, our youth pastor had a... a 
learned man come in and talk to us about demons, demonology, and the occult. And while he was talking, I realized that all this stuff had been in my family's past. And believe me, I was very ignorant. I, di I didn't know even what I was doing. But I know that God moved in my heart that day. And I bowed my head and I said, God, I don't know what all this stuff is in my family's past. I don't know what this, this junk that I may or may not have inherited. But I know this, I don't want it. Take it out of my life. I repent of my family's sin if it was ever there, I don't even know if it was there, but it was likely there because I'd seen it. And so I don't want it. Do something in me. Change that. Just give me what you want. And I repented of it, and it's never bothered me. And I don't know if it's because maybe it never bothered me anyway. I don't know, but I did that. But here's what I'm saying to you. I don't know who your parents are. I don't know who your grandparents are. I don't know your, you know, ethnic history. I don't know if even that you might be tempted the way your family in the past has been tempted. But I know this, no matter how you grew up, no matter where you came from, no matter how impossible it seems, God can change your life. If that's not true, the gospel's not true. We need to close our Bibles and go home. The Bible says God doesn't want to fix what's broken. He wants to make something brand new that won't break. All right, he wants to give you a new life. He wants, to, he wants to put a new person in the same skin. He wants to, the Bible says that I have died and God has put in me. The Bible says in Corinthians, if any man be in Christ, he's a brand new creation. All things pass away, all things become new. And so these two people who descend from people that messed up a lot bear become the great-grandparents of the King David, who is the forebearer of, of note of our Lord Jesus. God didn't put all that in that lineage for nothing because he records it in the Scripture so it's as plain as the nose on your face. He's trying to let us know that he is a man. He was created, uh, he, he was put into, uh, in, into Mary to be born of a, of a human, that he would be human, but also God, but as a human, that he would live a perfect life so that he could die for our sin. And he wasn't born into the best house. He wasn't born, and we think, oh yeah, he's the son of David. Yeah, but look who David's ancestors were. There's a bunch of scoundrels in there. But God can help you break the chain. And if you've got a chain, you say, well, my mom and dad were like this, and they put that in me. Then break that chain. God will break that chain for you. God can change your life. I don't know why God kind of led me to this conclusion. I read all this, you know, you get distracted by the horror of that story and you kind of look at it, well, what's in there? Here's what's in there. Ruth came from that. And she changed. She said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I reject the God of the Moabites. I get rid of this occultic, this, this false worship of these false gods. No matter what those false gods are, we don't call them the same names, but it may be a God of prosperity. It may be a God of nationality. It may be a, a God of family here. It may be some other God. But we're going to break that to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Your God will be my God. I'm going to get rid of that other stuff, and I'm going to worship the one true God. And God honors Ruth, and God will honor you and change your life. And so I encourage you to be a chain breaker in your heritage. 
So here's what I want you to take home with you today. First of all, if you think your story is over, it's not. It's not. If you think it's hopeless, it's not. If you think the end is here, it's not. God is more. He's always more. He's more abundant. He's more able. He's more, he's more intelligent. I won't say more smarter, but then I would have sounded dumb saying that. He's more merciful. He's more giving. He's more able to take care of all your needs. Secondly, I would say evaluate where the road you're on is leading. What road are you on? Where does it end up? We do so many things without thinking about the end result. Where Our country's in a mess in a foreign nation right now because somebody got something out of sequence, did it, made a dumb choice, and now we got a mess. What is the conclusion of the choices you're making right now? Get off that road if it's not the right road. Jesus talks about a broad road. It's a comfortable road. It's an easy road. There's a lot of people on it, but it leads to hell. And he's not on that road. The narrow road leads to heaven, but it is a tough road. But he goes with you every step of the way. I can go a rough road if I got a companion. Right? Because we're going to encourage each other to finish. And Jesus already finished the road, and he's going to get you through it. And then thirdly, have the courage to be a chain breaker. Don't give in to, oh, well, I can't help it. Now you're just blaming somebody else for your problem. You are your problem. Break the chain. Fix it. Go to Christ. He can change your life. And he can make a difference in your life. I believe that with all my heart. I pray that you will too. Father, in Jesus' name, we step into your presence. And thank you that you indeed have broken the chains that bound us, that held us. You set us free. And that word literally means in the Greek to break chains.